Section 14 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 22 to 23. Chapter 22 The Lord Chamberlain. At noon, the Lord Chamberlain appeared. With a long, low bow and paper in hand, he stepped softly into the room, greeting His Majesty with every appearance of the profoundest respect, and congratulated him on the evident progress he had made. He declared himself sorry to trouble him, but there were certain papers, he said, which required his signature, and therewith drew nearer to the king, who lay looking at him doubtfully. He was a lean, long, yellow man, with a small head, bald over the top, and tufted at the back and about the ears. He had a very thin, prominent, hooked nose, and a quantity of loose skin under his chin, and about the throat, which came craning up out of his neckcloth. His eyes were very small, sharp, and glittering, and looked black as jet. He had hardly enough of a mouth to make a smile with. His left hand held the paper, and the long skinny fingers of his right, a pen just dipped in ink. But the king, who for weeks had scarcely known what he did, was to-day so much himself as to be aware that he was not quite himself. And the moment he saw the paper, he resolved that he would not sign without understanding and approving of it. He requested the Lord Chamberlain, therefore, to read it. His lordship commenced at once. But the difficulties he seemed to encounter, and the fits of stammering that seized him, roused the king's suspicion tenfold. He called to the princess. "'I trouble his lordship too much,' he said to her. "'You can read print well, my child. Let me hear how you can read writing. Take that paper from his lordship's hand, and read it to me from beginning to end, while my lord drinks a glass of my favourite wine, and watches for your blunders.' "'Pardon me, Your Majesty,' said the Lord Chamberlain, with as much of a smile as he was able to extemporise. "'But it were a thousand pities to put the attainments of Her Royal Highness to a test altogether too severe. "'Your Majesty can scarcely, with justice, expect the very organs of her speech to prove capable of compassing words so long, and to her so unintelligible. "'I think much of my little princess and her capabilities.' "'returned the king, more and more aroused. "'Pray, my lord, permit her to try. "'Consider, your majesty, "'the thing would be altogether without precedent. "'It would be to make sport of statecraft,' "'said the lord chamberlain. "'Perhaps you are right, my lord,' "'answered the king, "'with more meaning than he intended should be manifest, "'while to his growing joy "'he felt new life and power "'throbbing in heart and brain.' "'So this morning we shall read no further. "'I am indeed ill-able for business of such weight. "'Will your Majesty please sign your royal name here?' "'said the Lord Chamberlain, "'preferring the request as a matter of course, "'and approaching with the feather end of the pen "'pointed to a spot where there was a great red seal. "'Not to-day, my lord,' replied the King. "'It is of the greatest importance, your Majesty.' "'softly insisted the other. "'I descried no such importance in it,' said the king. 
"'Your Majesty heard but a part.' "'And I can hear no more to-day.' "'I trust Your Majesty has ground enough, in a case of necessity like the present, "'to sign upon the representation of his loyal subject and chamberlain. "'Or shall I call the Lord Chancellor?' "'He added, rising. "'There is no need. "'I have the very highest opinion of your judgment, my lord,' "'answered the King.' "'That is, with respect to means, we might differ as to ends.' "'The Lord Chamberlain made yet further attempts at persuasion, "'but they grew feebler and feebler, "'and he was at last compelled to retire without having gained his object. "'And well might his annoyance be keen, "'for that paper was the King's will, "'drawn up by the Attorney-General. "'Not until they had the King's signature to it "'was there much use in venturing farther.' but his worst sense of discomfiture arose from finding the king with so much capacity left. For the doctor had pledged himself so to weaken his brain that he should be as a child in their hands, incapable of refusing anything requested of him. His lordship began to doubt the doctor's fidelity to the conspiracy. The princess was in high delight. She had not for weeks heard so many words— not to say words of such strength and reason, from her father's lips. Day by day he had been growing weaker and more lethargic. He was so much exhausted, however, after this effort, that he asked for another piece of bread and more wine, and fell fast asleep the moment he had taken them. The Lord Chamberlain sent in a rage for Dr. Kelman. He came, and while professing himself unable to understand the symptoms described by his lordship, yet pledged himself again that on the morrow the king should do whatever was required of him. The day went on. When his majesty was awake, the princess read to him, one story-book after another, and whatever she read, the king listened as if he had never heard anything so good before, making out in it the wisest meanings. Every now and then he asked for a piece of bread and a little wine, and every time he ate and drank he slept and every time he woke he seemed better than the last time. The princess, bearing her part, the loaf was eaten up, and the flagon emptied before night. The butler took the flagon away, and brought it back filled to the brim. But both were thirsty and hungry when Curdie came again. Meantime he and Lena, watching and waking alternatively, had plenty of sleep. In the afternoon, peeping from the recess, they saw several of the servants enter hurriedly, one after the other, draw wine, drink it, and steal out. But their business was to take care of the king, not of his cellar, and they let them drink. Also, when the butler came to fill the flagon, they restrained themselves, for the villain's fate was not yet ready for him. He looked terribly frightened and had brought with him a large candle and a small terrier, which latter indeed threatened to be troublesome, for he went roving and sniffing about until he came to the recess where they were. But as soon as he showed himself, Lena opened a jaw so wide and glared at him so horribly that, without even uttering a whimper, he tucked his tail between his legs and ran to his master. He was drawing the wicked wine at the moment, and did not see him, else he would doubtless have run too. When supper-time approached, 
Curdie took his place at the door in the servants' hall. But after a long hour's vain watch, he began to fear he should get nothing. There was so much idling about, as well as coming and going, it was hard to bear, chiefly from the attractions of a splendid loaf just fresh out of the oven, which he longed to secure for the king and princess. At length his chance did arrive. He pounced upon the loaf and carried it away, and soon after got hold of a pie. This time, however, both loaf and pie were missed. The cook was called. He declared he had provided both. One of themselves, he said, must have carried them away for some friend outside the palace. Then a housemaid, who had not long been one of them, said, she had seen someone like a page running in the direction of the cellar, with something in his hands. Instantly all turned upon the pages, accusing them, one after another. All denied, but nobody believed one of them. Where there is no truth, there can be no faith. To the cellar they all set out to look for the missing pie and loaf. Lena heard them coming, as well she might, for they were talking and quarrelling loud and gave her master warning. They snatched up everything, and got all signs of their presence out at the back door before the servants entered. When they found nothing, they all turned on the chambermaid and accused her, not only of lying against the pages, but of having taken the things herself. Their language and behaviour so disgusted Curdie, who could hear a great part of what passed, and he saw the danger of discovery now so much increased, "'that he began to devise how best at once "'to rid the palace of the whole pack of them. "'That, however, would be a small gain "'so long as the treacherous officers of state continued in it. "'They must be first dealt with. "'A thought came to him, "'and the longer he looked at it, the better he liked it. "'As soon as the servants were gone, "'quarrelling and accusing all the way, "'they returned and finished their supper.' Then Curdie, who had long been satisfied that Lena understood almost every word he said, communicated his plan to her, and knew by the wagging of her tail and the flashing of her eyes that she comprehended it. Until they had the king safe through the worst part of the night, however, nothing could be done. They had now merely to go on waiting where they were, till the household should be asleep. This waiting and waiting was much the hardest thing Curdie had to do in the whole affair. He took his mattock and, going again into the long passage, lighted a candle end and proceeded to examine the rock on all sides. But this was not merely to pass the time. He had a reason for it. When he broke the stone in the street, over which the baker fell, its appearance led him to pocket a fragment for further examination and since then he had satisfied himself that it was the kind of stone in which gold is found, and that the yellow particles in it were pure metal. If such stone existed here in any plenty, he could soon make the king rich and independent of all his ill-conditioned subjects. He was therefore now bent on an examination of the rock. Nor had he been at it long before he was persuaded that there were large quantities of gold in the half-crystalline white stone, with its vein of opaque white and of green, of which the rock, so far as he had been able to inspect it, seemed almost entirely to consist. 
Every piece he broke was spotted with particles and little lumps of a lovely greenish-yellow, and that was gold. Hitherto he had worked only in silver, but he had read and heard talk and knew, therefore, about gold. As soon as he had got the king free of rogues and villains, he would have all the best and most honest miners, with his father at the head of them, to work this rock for the king. It was a great delight to him to use his mattock once more. The time went quickly, and when he left the passage to go to the king's chamber, he had already a good heap of fragments behind the broken door. Chapter 23 Dr. Kelman As soon as he had reason to hope the way was clear, Curdie ventured softly into the hall, with Lena behind him. There was no one asleep on the bench or floor, but by the fading fire sat a girl weeping. It was the same who had seen him carry off the food, and had been so hardly used for saying so. She opened her eyes when he appeared, but did not seem frightened at him. "'I know why you weep,' said Curdie, "'and I am sorry for you. "'It is hard not to be believed just because one speaks the truth,' said the girl. "'But that seems reason enough with some people. "'My mother taught me to speak the truth.' "'and took such pains with me that I should find it hard to tell a lie, "'though I could invent many a story these servants would believe at once. "'For the truth is a strange thing here, "'and they don't know it when they see it. "'Show it them, and they all stare as if it were a wicked lie, "'and that with the lie yet warm that has just left their own mouths. "'You are a stranger,' she said, and burst out weeping afresh. "'but the stranger you are to such a place and such people, the better.' "'I am the person,' said Curdie, "'whom you saw carrying the things from the supper-table.' "'He showed her the loaf. "'If you can trust me, as well as speak the truth, I will trust you. "'Can you trust me?' "'She looked at him steadily for a moment. "'I can,' she answered. "'One thing more.' "'said Curdie. "'Have you courage as well as truth?' "'I think so. "'Look my dog in the face and don't cry out. "'Come here, Lena.' "'Lena obeyed. "'The girl looked at her "'and laid her hand on Lena's head. "'Now I know you are a true woman,' said Curdie. "'I am come to set things right in this house. "'Not one of the servants knows I am here. "'Will you tell them tomorrow morning that?' "'if they do not alter their ways and give over drinking and lying and stealing and unkindness, "'they shall, every one of them, be driven from the palace. "'They will not believe me. "'Most likely. "'But will you give them the chance?' "'I will. "'Then I will be your friend. "'Wait here till I come again.' "'She looked at him once more in the face and sat down.' When he reached the royal chamber, he found his majesty awake and very anxiously expecting him. He received him with the utmost kindness, and at once, as it were, put himself in his hands by telling him all he knew concerning the state he was in. His voice was feeble, but his eyes were clear, although now and then his words and thoughts seemed to wander. Curdie could not be certain that the cause of their not being intelligible to him "'did not lie in himself. "'The king told him that, for some years, "'ever since his queen's death, 
he had been losing heart over the wickedness of his people. He had tried to make them good, but they got worse and worse. Evil teachers, unknown to him, had crept into the schools. There was a general decay of truth and right principle at least in the city, and as that set the example to the nation, it must spread. The main cause of his illness was the despondency with which the degeneration of his people affected him. He could not sleep, and had terrible dreams, while, to his unspeakable shame and distress, he doubted almost everybody. He had striven against his suspicion, but in vain, and his heart was sore, for his courtiers and counsellors were really kind. Only he could not think why none of their ladies came near his princess. The whole country was discontented, he heard, and there were signs of gathering storm outside as well as inside his borders. The master of the horse gave him sad news of the insubordination of the army, and his great white horse was dead, they told him, and his sword had lost its temper. It bent double the last time he tried it. Only, perhaps that was in a dream, and they could not find his shield, and one of his spurs had lost the roll. Thus the poor king went wandering in a maze of sorrows, some of which were purely imaginary, while others were truer than he understood. He told how thieves came at night and tried to take his crown, so that he never dared let it out of his hands, even when he slept, and how every night an evil demon in the shape of his physician came and poured poison down his throat. He knew it to be poison, he said, somehow, although it tasted like wine. Here he stopped, faint with the unusual excitation of talking. Curdie seized the flagon and ran to the wine-cellar. In the servants' hall the girl still sat by the fire, waiting for him. As he returned he told her to follow him, and left her at the chamber door until he should rejoin her. When the king had had a little wine, he informed him that he had already discovered certain of his majesty's enemies, and one of the worst of them was the doctor, for it was no other demon than the doctor himself who had been coming every night, and giving him a slow poison. So, said the king, then I have not been suspicious enough, for I thought it was but a dream. Is it possible Kelman can be such a wretch? Who then am I to trust? "'Not one in the house except the princess and myself,' said Curdie. "'I will not go to sleep,' said the king. "'That would be as bad as taking the poison,' said Curdie. "'No, no, sire. You must show your confidence by leaving all the watching to me, and doing all the sleeping your majesty can.' The king smiled a contented smile, turned on his side, and was presently fast asleep. Then Curdie persuaded the princess also to go to sleep, and telling Lena to watch, went to the housemaid. He asked her if she could inform him which of the council slept in the palace, and show him their rooms. She knew every one of them, she said, and took in the round of all the doors, telling him which slept in each room. He then dismissed her, and returning to the king's chamber, seated himself behind a curtain at the head of the bed on the side farthest from the king. He told Lena to get under the bed and make no noise. 
About one o'clock the doctor came stealing in. He looked round for the princess, and, seeing no one, smiled with satisfaction as he approached the wine where it stood under the lamp. Having partly filled a glass, he took from his pocket a small phial, and filled up the glass from it. The light fell upon his face from above, and Curdie saw the snake in it plainly visible. He had never beheld such an evil countenance. The man hated the king, and delighted in doing him wrong. With the glass in his hand, he drew near the bed, set it down, and began his usual rude rousing of his majesty. Not at once succeeding, he took a lancet from his pocket, and was parting its cover with an involuntary hiss of hate between his closed teeth, when Curdie stooped and whispered to Lena, "'Take him by the leg, Lena.' She darted noiselessly upon him. With a face of horrible consternation, he gave his leg one tug to free it. The next instant Curdie heard the one scrunch with which she crushed the bone like a stick of celery. He tumbled on the floor with a yell. "'Drag him out, Lena,' said Curdie. Lena took him by the collar and dragged him out. Her master followed her to direct her, and they left the doctor lying across the Lord Chamberlain's door, where he gave another horrible yell and fainted. The king had waked at his first cry, and by the time Curdie re-entered, he had got at his sword where it hung from the centre of the tester, had drawn it, and was trying to get out of bed. But when Curdie told him all was well, he lay down again as quietly as a child comforted by his mother from a troubled dream. Curdie went to the door to watch. The doctor's yells had aroused many, but not one had yet ventured to appear. Bells were rung violently, but none were answered, and in a minute or two Curdie had what he was watching for. The door of the Lord Chamberlain's room opened, and pale with hideous terror, his lordship peeped out. Seeing no one, he advanced to step into the corridor, and tumbled over the doctor. Curdie ran up and held out his hand. He received in it the claw of a bird of prey, vulture or eagle he could not tell which. His lordship, as soon as he was on his legs, taking him for one of the pages, abused him heartily for not coming sooner and threatened him with dismissal from the king's service for cowardice and neglect. He began indeed what bade fair to be a sermon on the duties of a page, but catching sight of the man who lay at his door, and seeing it was the doctor, he fell upon Curdie afresh for standing there doing nothing, and ordered him to fetch immediate assistance. Curdie left him, but slipped into the king's chamber, closed and locked the door, and left the rascals to look after each other. Ere long he heard hurrying footsteps, and for a few minutes there was a great muffled tumult of scuffling feet, low voices, and deep groanings. Then all was still again. Irene slept through the hole. So confidently did she rest, knowing Curdie was in her father's room watching over him. End of section 14